What's in those animals' eyes is what's in our eyes. They breathe, we breathe. They have mm -hmm. babies, we have babies. Mm -hmm. And open up for me is that I was seeing these animals literally as me, as mm -hmm. no differentiation. And um, it was amazing. It's like they contain the same life that we get, like all the life it contains itself. It's just a reflection of itself. And I was like, holy shit, this is, this is fucking incredible. Right. Not only that, but they kept telling me that and I didn't know what they meant. And now I can see it for myself. <laughs> I know. It's like, whoa, what's going on? <laughs> <laughs> yes, this is this the one of the words is used for that is at one month, mm. which is another way of pronouncing and spelled the same way as the word atonement. Mm. Or if you listen to the word tone, then you can also understand that atonement and that one month is also being in tune. Hmm. And to begin to resonate with that they're, you know, the actually uh, at the frequency of life. Yes, that's what it's like. Yes, it's like <laughs> it's frequency. Yes. And you can see the separation, you can see the idea of a me or of an Alex, but you see that it's all arbitrary, just like everything else, and everything reflects back to itself. Mm hmm Everything is that way. And the common thread is life itself. Yeah. And that you could say that, in fact, that that life itself in old ways of thinking and looking is venia. Uh, um, you, you know words in our English language, maybe not so much. Uh, 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 Viva la France. You hear that? Vive. That's life. Mm -hmm. Okay, that's the in the word life. But uh, 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 viva. Um, and and this is also in the part of the word vin or vinia, which mm. is also translated as consciousness. Mm. And consciousness and life are very, very closely, deeply related. Mm. Almost mm. as if it's the same thing, just two different words that we use for it, with mm -hmm. two different approaches. Yeah. Yes. And so being alive is what we share. Yeah, right. That's what I'm in touch with, yeah. Mm -hmm. And we depend upon each other. Yeah. <laughs> that literally dog eats dog, but that's the yeah. natural way that it's done. Yeah. Let's do it wisely rather than uh, creating a lot of damage along the way. Right, exactly. That's what I noticed. Like the seals, right? There's such a large colony, and so there's bound to be war among the prideful men, you know, and they're fighting each other next. And I was like, how is this different than the wars that are overseas? It's like, it's just in there, it's just in life. Well, one of the issues now then is, is that life itself wants uh how to say it life itself likes life itself 
uh, to coin a phrase uh, out of an old movie, uh, Mel Brooks movie, uh, being king is good. It's good to be the king. It's Mm -hmm. good to be the king. Right. That's it. All right. So that's what we're looking at. It is actually good to be alive. We all cling to it. We're all sad when we're around dead people. We don't like being around dead people. We don't like being around people who die. That's why we send them to hospitals. Mm -hmm. Okay. And funeral homes and all of that whole industry is because we cling to life itself. Mm. And this is why religions will um, advertise life everlasting. (laughs) But by doing so, they miss kind of the point with that, because there's a difference between just being alive, but being unhappy and miserable and wanting something more, et cetera, like that, like a normal human being versus those of us who were actually relishing being alive to be really into it, to really get a big kick out of, hey, this is, I mean, I'm actually breathing here. (laughs) (laughs) What? What? (laughs) I'm I'm breathing like those seals and I'm watching in the freaking (laughs) Yeah, we're all doing it. We're alive. All doing it. (laughs) And, And we don't appreciate it very much. No. Because we want to keep it alive. We cling to life itself so dearly that we don't dare try to mess it up. Oh, my gosh. We keep, we cling to life itself so dearly that we end up killing life. Right. That's what it is. Mm-hmm. Wars, we're so afraid of our lives that we end up killing another. Precisely so. We're just punishing ourselves, going around in a circle. <laughs> yep, and that's the song we sing. That's the song we sing. Uh huh. That's the song that never ends. It just keeps going around in a circle like that. Um, and that you could also say that it that religions are built around it in the sense of defining what the rules are telling people not to break the rules they go break the rules then they come and get forgiveness for the rules they get uh they come for the forgiveness they get the forgiveness for breaking the rules and then they go out and start breaking the rules again and then they come back again and get forgiveness and then they get forgiven and then with a clean slate they go out and break the rules again And so this is the cycle. This is what the confessional booth at the Catholic Church is all about. I was talking to my uh, um, Catholic mom about that the other day. I was telling her, um, they, they're giving you a solution for a problem that they created. So it's this like (laughs) religion is like a scam. It's like they create the problem in the first place. Like they create the sense of guilt and the sense of fear. And then now here's the solution. And then that's how they like perpetuate the like brainwashing. (laughs) Great. Yeah. (laughs) And they they don't know that they do that. That, Well, some do and some don't. 
That's what I meant to say. Some figure it out and some don't. That in fact, there's a whole industry now around that issue because that issue is becoming kind of public. And that is in the sense, and the first one that I would know about is the, <clears throat> the Bible scholar, the professor emeritus at the uh, seminary who teaches Bible to know to new recruits that are coming through that are going to be preachers and he's done enough research in the bible to know that it is a big mess it's a big pile of stuff mm -hmm. that there is no one belief system in there anywhere that's consistent that even the name of god changes from um uh, uh, Elohim to Yahweh to Jehoshaphat to you know all kinds Jesus the names keep changing and so do the identifications and so this scholar knows that this stuff is in fact what we're talking about here that it is in fact a system of making people afraid and feeling bad and then giving them a solution by giving them forgiveness for what they're doing bad but in the fact what we're doing is we're training them to be bad but we're actually doing it by putting them inside of a pressure cooker right and so um that happened now up until uh, the modern political times where when Christianity falls apart, what happens? Generally, what happens is, is that you have people who become either quasi by name or something close to what is considered an atheist. And atheism has enough different definitions that we can plop a whole bunch of people in there. Okay, and so that's the group that by and large after they come out of christianity they don't change their moral context at all that in fact they wind out because they cannot now get forgiveness from the church they actually are better behaved and because of that in fact it has the the, the statistics is uh done county by county and the counties that are the reddest versus the counties that are the bluest, and you know what I'm talking about. The red counties wind up having more domestic violence, more police shootings, more people in jail, more divorce, more alcoholism than the counties that are blue. And yet all the people in the red counties are the ones that are pointing at the blue counties about how immoral they are. But the statistics shows otherwise. But the point is, is that as Christianity itself devolves, the group itself devolves to immorality and the immorality path goes through that finger pointing. We're better than you are because we've got rules that you're keeping, but we own the rules, so we don't have to keep them. And that happens actually when something is dying away. And so you can see that the, it's the death of Christianity that devolves into not only it, uh, to, can do we get forgiveness, but that we get free forgiveness. So that it's okay for the soldiers who are Christian to go out and kill other people. They've already got automatic forgiveness. 
Okay, so, uh, and and that's when, um, let us say, it devolves into a cult in modern definitions of, of a cult in the sense that people will, in the name of good, do very bad things in order to protect the organization that is in danger of dying. Or in a sense, backed into a corner, you know, like a, it's a, the issue is, is uh, a cornered animal. OK, Alex, going back to that little group of uh, uh, puppies or uh, uh, baby animals, imagine then that that mother is now in her den and some great big animal is coming in there to eat those babies and her too mm -hmm. she's gonna she's going to act like an animal that is cornered mm -hmm. right mm -hmm. this is one of the things that we can understand about human nature is is that people who are cornered behave irrationally because mm -hmm. staying alive is more important than anything else <laughs> and we will drop all our ethics in order to stay alive if we are not wise to this clinging to life. <laughs> we cling to it desperately. And so you can see an entire religion, an entire political party is clinging desperately to its own existence, they'll break all the rules while screaming at the top of their lungs <laughs> about the other people who are better behaved than they are. <laughs> Scott, yes. Okay, so that brings up the question, what's the difference or how does one go from or why does one go from clinging to life and enjoying life? Like you're and saying, to relishing it, right. Relishing. Okay. Mm -hmm. Well, for one thing you can say is, is that our society, even the religions who should be promoting that, and in some cases do, our whole society doesn't do that. What we do is, um, let us say, um, substitutions for that. Like parks and theaters and uh, museums and zoos. All of that kind of stuff is making a profit off of people trying to get away from their lives and getting back to nature. Okay, that we we actually all cling to that. This is this is in fact the spiritual journey, the waking up process that should be religion rather than just a set of rules and getting people caught in that circle that we were talking about. But the awakening is the awakening to being alive, to being awake. Waking up to being alive, waking up to the fact that you are a living being that actually has total control over your own existence. But we don't know how to do that. 
because uh, we've been ignorantly doing what we were told to do instead of doing what we like to do. And so um, not only do we do what we're told to do, but we often resent it and become rebellious and don't do it or destroy what daddy has built or destroy daddy himself. And then the next phase is the guilt phase for having screwed it up. Okay, here I have a beautiful inheritance and I have to go muck it up because I hate the man who gave it to me. And that happens, gosh, how many times every time you have a dynasty, it's going to end that way. <laughs> so, um, we can, going back to Scott's question, how do we make the change? The answer is that if we know that this is the job to do, then we're going to practice doing it often. We're going to remember to do it. This is sati. The sati is to remember to wake up and to look at what you're doing. And then you have a choice to make and you being in charge now and <clears throat> know that you have a choice. You can choose to feel the way you want to feel right now because you remember that you can feel the way that you feel right now. And being alive is part of the package. And so feeling all vibrantly alive and well, this is part of the reason why breathing is so valuable in the uh, practice of Anapanasati is because the ancients well knew it. We study it in school, but we don't make a point of it. But your breath is life itself. If you don't breathe, you're going to die. How many days can you go without a girlfriend? How many days can you go without uh, food? How many days can you go without water? How, can, how many days can you go without sunshine? How many days can you go without money? How many days can you go without breathing? <laughs> That's how vital it is. And there's that word vital or uh, uh, vinia again. It's vital. It's alive. The air does keeps us alive. Pardon? Sorry, um, did, uh, did I mute you, Alex? No, mute Yeah, Alex. you did. <laughs> okay. Oh, oops. okay. Oh. Oh, man, I'm, I was trying to just mute. I'm sorry. <laughs> I don't know what you're even doing. We're on Skype, and what are you doing? Uh, my bad. You're sorry for doing what? <laughs> I didn't. Sorry. <laughs> well, that I was know, fun. I didn't, I didn't know I had the power to do that. Okay. I got um, kicked out by life. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome back. <laughs> well, hello. <laughs> All right. I uh, didn't know you were that kind of God. 
<laughs> yeah, I mean, Scott, that was pretty impressive. <laughs> right. I mean, talk about death and resurrection there. <laughs> so, anyway, um, b before we had a Jesus moment, um, <laughs> we were talking about life itself, and I was jawboning on about the breathing. This is why the taking a deep breath is so vital. Hear that word, vital. It's so vital that we can't do without it, and yet we don't appreciate it, and it keeps us alive. I have a question about that. Mm -hmm. um, for, so when you say deep breath, um, I've, I've, I've heard a lot of different like breathing instructions. So um, could you They elaborate? all are correct. The, every one of them is correct. The only incorrect way to breathe is ignorantly, unmindfully not watching it. All other techniques are valuable and wholesome. That's okay. the way to draw the line. And I know a lot of, I know box breathing and I know reverse box breathing. And I, and um, um, there's, I mean, pranayana and uh, the yogis that uh, can uh, exhale and put it. Uh-oh. Can you guys hear him? No, he stopped. I'm going to have to resurrect um, Dharma. He stopped. Benefit from. <laughs> oh, you, we couldn't hear you for, there for a second. Okay. I, I was saying that all of the yogis and all of the various different practices, um, they gain benefit from doing those practices. That even the martial arts include breathing techniques. That uh, uh, golf has breathing techniques. The very best of bowlers know about their breathing. Um, uh, marksmen and snipers have to pay very close attention to their breathing. Because if they're breathing while they're pulling the trigger, they're going to be moving the gun. They've got to be completely relaxed. And it's actually a training exercise. There's a lot of various things. And so we can say then that it's not which breathing system is best. It's that if you, whether you've got a breathing system or not. Any of them will do. Uh, I would elaborate uh, just like being mindful of the breathing is kind of the that's the technique. Just be aware of your breath. Right. But, exactly. So that's what all techniques do. If you're going to practice a breathing technique, you've got to be mindful of practicing that breathing technique when you're doing that breathing technique. And so mindfulness is there in all of them. <laughs> yeah. Funny thing about that. <laughs> hey, Don Morato. Yes. I'm curious what you got for this. Why is it important to be mindful of your breathing? Um, a number of reasons. One, 
is, is that it actually, without defining or giving attributes to sati, mindfulness of breathing is a way of building sati, especially in the sense of mindfully breathing in and then mindfully breathing out. So that's two points of mindfulness that's mentioned there in the Anapanasati Sutta, okay? And then we use that mindfulness of breathing in while we're practicing the other factors. And I say practice in the sense, sense of skill development or in this uh, one translation, the word is training, that we train the mind to gladden the mind. We train the mind to investigate the mind. We train the mind to investigate the body. We train the mind to investigate our feelings. We train the mind to gladden the mind. We train the mind to relax and rest the body. And we train the mind then to allow the feelings to be safe, secure, and comfortable into satisfaction, or let us say, being at a state of rest or peace. This is what the practice of Anapanasati is all about, and it's also because of the breathing energizing. So here we are all relaxed and feeling vibrantly alive, generated and all attached to the environment that we're in, and we're just sitting here all fat, wise, and happy. <laughs> With no place to go and nothing to do except to share our joy with our friends. So I'm really glad you said that because what I was kind of thinking was, you know, up until now, the being mindful of the breath has been kind of like a mystery as to like, why, why am I doing this kind of thing? And, you know, I have to follow this roadmap in order to get somewhere when I've like gotten really good at being mindful of the breath. But what I didn't realize until now is that being mindful of the breath, just like you said, encourages the cultivation of remembering to be awake, remembering that you are breathing. Awake, <laughs> you're breathing that you're, you're breathing. You're still like, breathing. Hey, isn't that a miracle? That there's I should just, have been dead by now. <laughs> to just be awake to life. Uh -huh. Right? Like awake to life itself. That's that's all those practices are for. It's not so that you can be a master mindful breather. <laughs> it's so and that so you can you be can awake to kick. life. No, it's so you can get a, a surprising kick and joy out of being a mindful breather, a master at it. Right. right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because the, the deep uh, breaths, they physiologically change you and they make you feel better so it's like it's the feet it's like the breath there's nothing i mean the breath is just the breath like what's the point it's the breath but like taking deep breaths and enjoying it like literally changes how you feel like that's mm -hmm. the purpose right but i was going to ask you when you take a deep breath do you, does your um Rib cage expand like in the chest area, or does your belly expand? Because I know you can take a deep breath like through the belly, or you can take a deep breath um, and have the. No, you the can. That that's a myth. That 
all the people except for two class. Actually, there are several classes of people. Singers, woodwind instrument players, some dancers, and some um, uh, sports people understand that that's not true. But it is a myth instead that in fact that myth is so strong that all, that in the 1960s Buddhism was uh, introduced to the West as navel gazing down in the belly. And that's what you were talking about. But if you look at um, Grey's Anatomy, and I'm not talking about a TV show, I'm talking about the book that the medical people have to go through that shows all the various parts of the body. You look at the skeleton and all of that, you'll see that the lungs are not in the belly. That's not where we breathe. Not only that, but there is a solid ridge of muscles between the belly and that, and that solid ridge of muscles is called the diaphragm. And people who were developing, um, let us say, brass or woodwind instrument playing or singing or doing that, they learn to control that diaphragm and they know very well where it is. Okay. And it's good for meditators to learn where the diaphragm is and start to develop those muscles also. That, that wind instrument players and singers have an up on it for you. Sorry about that, but it comes with the territory. You got to learn to breathe correctly in order to play the wind instruments or to hold a note and to hold it solid. You got to learn to control that that breathing in there. So that that um, singer or that uh, tuba player waltzes into a Goenka retreat and begins to appreciate things in a new way because he's already familiar with that part of the body, but now he's really investigating it and recognizing where the the extent of it is. And so that's what I would invite you to do is to find the extent of where your breathing is rather than following these silly rules that you've been told. Yeah. Don't go by what you've been told or what this, the uh, the theme is. Go by what's in your own body. Experience it. Play with your breathing. Figure out what a deep breath is for you. Uh, you can do it in several ways of counting. Uh, one is to count each breath, like one on an in-breath and then two on the next in-breath and then three on the next in-breath, and that will give you range of uh, sustaining. But other ways of doing it is like count by second. One second, two seconds, three seconds, four seconds, like that, and begin to uh, get a rhythm going uh so that we can begin to slow the breathing down so in the beginning uh uh the one that's this that i know of that um can be used is called reverse box breathing which is um defined by the box breathing naturally and that is is that you do a count of four on an in-breath and then you hold it for a count of two to fill the lungs and then on the out breath on a count of four. So it's one, two, three, four, in, hold, hold, one, two, three, four, out. 
One, two, three, four, in, hold, hold, hold. One, two, three, four, out, right? Do you know who developed the box breathing? This is the SEALs. The Navy SEALs do this breathing. Okay, the reverse box breathing would be more of what we're looking for, but it's the same basically, except that instead of holding the breath on an in-breath, because what they're doing is they're fully oxygenating the body, what we're doing is we're fully relaxing the body, and so we're going to count one, two, three, four in, and then one, two, three, four out, and then on the end of the out breath, we hold it for a short time, a count of two, okay? Well, if we're doing this in 10 seconds, that means that now we've got our breathing down to six breaths a minute which is significantly slower than normal breathing. That in so fact- So that like to teach themselves to be calm. Pardon? They probably do that then to teach themselves to be calm, the Navy SEALs. Absolutely, and to pay yeah. attention to what's going on in the present moment, because this practice they're doing is they're doing it when they're up to their neck in a swamp of alligators in the southern swamps of South Carolina. I know all about them with a great big heavy gun above their head to keep it dry. And they're just standing there from about 4 a.m. to about 6 a.m. because that's the training that they're doing. And they added the breathing to it, and the uh, success rate went from about 25% up to about 50%, just by changing and giving them a breathing style. Okay, so this is part of the science's Dhamma, and Dhamma is science. We've got the Navy SEALs proving that Anapanasati <laughs> is a good practice. <laughs> so, about that, right? Because, like, they're Navy SEALs. Like, I mean, obviously, we don't know if they're, you know, interested in spiritual practices or, you know. I'm sure they got this from the yogis. I'm absolutely I'm convinced sure. of it. Oh, yeah. No, I'm sure. But, like, it's interesting, right? So, like, they're doing box breathing. They're Navy SEALs. <laughs> and we're, you know, a bunch of dudes, like, trying to practice Dhamma, which they're both the same, but do those seals know that they're practicing Dhamma? Are they aware of it? Are they awake? You know, how do we? Uh, we can't know, but like, I'm just curious about that. Actually, let us say in a certain kind of way, yes, and in a certain kind of way, no. Uh -huh. Okay, in the certain kind of way, yes, they're training these seals to be lions, to be tough dudes, to be able to handle anything, okay? To be able to go walk into any situation somewhat fearlessly, because they know that they're ready to do anything, right? Yeah. That's the good part. The bad part is, is that they still haven't seen Dukkha yet. They still haven't seen emptiness yet. They still haven't seen um, the no conflict in the conflict. All they see in conflict is conflict. And so they're ready to jump right into the conflict. Gung-ho. 
Hold my beer. <laughs> Off I go. <laughs> yeah. All right. And all they see is the conflict as a conflict. The wisdom that we're talking about and the army officers, the, the, the core, uh, the elite, the generals, may in fact have figured it out. But they don't want the guys in the field to figure it out. And really? not only that, but the army officers, the top corps, not only do they don't want the uh, troops to figure it out, they want to keep it secret because they want to keep their jobs. Well, do you think that this if they is, really figured it out, they would intentionally keep other people in um in delusion? Yes. What's well, interesting? Yes. It's like, I mean, you put me in an army right now, right? Let, let's, I'll be a general. I would absolutely want to make sure that my fellow comrade was not in delusion. I'd, I'd do whatever I could to help them. Yes, and you wouldn't last long in that army, now would you? You'd either yeah. burn yourself on the lawn. <laughs> yeah, but if I was awake, I would see that I wouldn't need the army. You wouldn't need the army. That's what I'm saying. Did you? It, the question is, is what? How hard would you slam the door on your way out? There's some level of of deception and delusion to get anybody to go to like <laughs> Afghanistan. You see the commercials oh, for sure. military recruitment. Yeah, and it's like oh, it's gonna be like a video game, and it's like I mean, like cool guns, like oh, you get to shoot guns, like it's so cool, you get all this equipment. <laughs> so they're definitely <laughs> they're definitely keeping some people in the dark. That's the only way it could work. Maybe uh, I was in really the military to, to war. I was, Actually, I knew I was, a guy. I knew a guy. I, I used to work with a guy when I was a dishwasher. Who was like, I can't wait to go back to Afghanistan. He loved war. Oh, wow. he, was like, he was obsessed with war. Like he loved combat. So wow. I'm sure there are exceptions to the rule, but I think that's I think that's the I think that's the exception and not the rule. If you, um, if you go ahead, if you guys think um, so, like to an extent, like you can realize that uh, society and culture at large is a kind of propaganda machine um, to convince you to. Um, I don't usually spend money uh, in the West, but. Um, if you realize that like all of these forces are like um, essentially have like hidden mo motives and they're they're spewing out their propaganda disguised as like um, normal Politics. messages. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The military is that tenfold. Yeah. It's a propaganda machine to get you to yeah. essentially obey and stand in line. But, uh, okay, but my argument and the true. The true, um, the thing why I don't think like anyone practicing the Dhamma can last in the thing like the military is because a true lion does not follow, obey, does not exactly. obey the, yeah. Yeah, exactly. So let's, when you said the, the, um, the military is tenfold, there's the other ones that are a hundredfold and that's the religions. Mm. If you'll remember going back, I started to talk about, in fact, the, um, the the Bible scholar, PhD. Hello, Robert, you've been hiding. 
<laughs> Hi guys. Yeah. Hey, Robert. In, uh, okay. In so low the... key listening mode. So. Right. So the um, uh, the Bible scholar, the PhD, who is at the seminary, he's top of his field. Old man, who has actually figured out the Bible and the religion that he is in. Um, let us say is more than problematic. Right. But he continues to teach the Bible to these up and coming young Christians. But all he can do is plant the seeds. For them to go figure out that this Bible that they're carrying around is just an old book. Yeah, <laughs> that's all it is. It's just an old book. It's not yeah. any different than any other books other than it's just really old because all of books are full of a bunch of crap. That's what Very books potty. have. <laughs> and, and so that's all it is. And, and so all that professor can do is plant the seed. Now, there's also the case <clears throat> where this preacher then does get the seeds and there he is preaching from the pulpit and yet he dares not tell the congregation that new seed has just flowered and he don't believe any of the stuff that he's preaching from the pulpit okay, okay. but do you think he would actually do that if he was truly out of delusion there is a no, he's not. He's still in delusion and he's still right. in it because he is attached to and because they'll they will they will lose their job. They will just with one sentence. That preacher can pass one sentence in a in a sermon, then that many people might miss it, but some will get it. And with one sentence, he can lose his job, his house, his wife, his position in the community access to his kids he can be ostracized completely and have to leave this can happen just by telling the truth from the pulpit the wrong truth at the wrong time you're absolutely right so he built himself a prison without knowing it and he has built himself a prison without knowing it exactly the case okay and so that happens in the military and you're you're, you're right it's not a full awakening yet because of all of the attachments that he still has. What he's only yeah. woken up to is that the, the story that I have been told is crap. Yeah. But he does not yet know what the right story is to where within the context of the teaching of the Buddha, there is a point in time when we do come to the point of the knowledge and vision of what is and is not the path. The Eightfold Noble Path is the path and religions and the stories and the magic and um, uh, the socializations and the cultures and the language and all of that stuff is not the path. What is the path is this breath, this moment coming into the here now coming into the joy that all of those people sitting in the pulpit are hoping for when they get to heaven. Mm. When they can have that heaven and the feeling <laughs> of heaven right here, right now, because they're already in the presence of God. They came to church, didn't they? <laughs> <laughs> wow. 
that's kind of that put that's going to put them out of their job. That's why they don't want. Right. So if this if this breath if this moment is God, then the priest right. is kind of out of a job uh-huh. at that point. Yeah. Exactly. So that's the point. So the preacher now knows what is not the path, but he doesn't uh-huh. yet know what is the path. Wow, that crazy. <laughs> They're, they are probably the most ripe for the actual Dhamma. Precisely. They call them Jubus. <laughs> Jubus. They call them what? They call them Jubus. Hello, Robert. <laughs> you got your hand up. <laughs> Robert. What's your question, Robert? <laughs> That, that's me, uh, the Jew Boo reporting for duty here. <laughs> Jewish Buddhist, yeah. You were a priest, Robert? No, 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 no. I, I'm Jewish. Jewish Jew, Buddhist. Jew. So, uh, oh, yeah. Yeah. But, um, anyway, so my question, you know, it, it seems to me that, I, and I know you cited your, your statistic about violence in religious communities and this type of a thing. So, mm-hmm. you know, that's good, very good to keep into account. But, you know, it seems to me that uh, some people, given a choice between a nihilism, where they don't believe in anything at all, um, and some kind of grounding, like, say, just trying to abide by the ethics in the Bible. The ethics in the Bible, it's not as high quality as Dhamma. But it seems to me to and, be superior to nihilism. Yeah. Right. It's all over the place. Where, where do you find the actual full? There's no place. It's just all Not only is it all over the place in the Bible, it's all over the place in the sense of nailing down what is morality to where the Buddha really, really nails it right down to the floor. Sure. You know, that said, there are still those people that I'm sure we've all met that are practicing Christians that you meet that seem to be very ethical people. You know, I can think of a number that I've met where they're just really solid, you know, they have stable families, they just seem to be like good people. Until when? Well, at least as far as I'm exposed to them, you know. (laughs) I don't know how they are all the time, (laughs) of course. But there seem to be plenty of people like that that Christianity has produced. You know, now there's also many bad examples, too, of course, but there are some good eggs, too. So, yeah, um, you know, and it seems to me like just one last one last little point here is the Christians that behave the worst are Christian are actually nihilists that are disguising themselves as Christians, like that pastor that will take a bunch of money and then abuse women and all of this. That person is actually a nihilist. You're right. absolutely correct. Yes, I wouldn't use the word necessarily nihilist, but it's, it's good enough. That's a good enough word. In fact, uh, uh, in, and it's a nihilist in the sense of uh, wrong view. Uh, in the teaching of the Buddha, wrong view here is that he can basically get away with anything he can put his hand in the collection plate and god is not going to slap him he's going to get forgiveness not only from god but anybody else in the community that catches him at it and then he can get away with 
his hand in the other collection plate called panties. <laughs> and he can get away with that too. Sure. And, and, and if he does get caught, he will get forgiveness from God. He will give for, he will get forgiveness from whoever catches him at it, and he will get caught. He does right, get so caught. But the nihilism is part of it is, is that uh, there is no retribution and he won't get caught. He's too powerful. He's too big. He's too good. He's too powerful. He's too well known. And how dare God do it to him so he can get away with anything. This is what we would mean then by nihilism in the context that you're talking about. Hmm. Okay. So, um, closer to home, here's an issue that you probably don't quite understand, and that is, is that, uh, and I saw this really, really full bore in the U.S., uh, where some groups of Asians, both Cambodians and Lao mostly, are really into having a big ceremony where the monks come to their house and do Shaktipat and a lot of other stuff. Um, and that uh, the monks who are noble know that this ceremony is just a ceremony, but they do it anyway. Now, so that leaves us with three different kinds of monks. It leaves us with the ordinary monks, most of them, that do the ceremonies because they think it's the right thing to do with an ordinary mind. And then those nobles, which go and do the ceremonies, knowing that the ceremonies in and of themselves have no value, but it does place them within the, um, let us say, vicinity of people that can ask better questions. Mm. And then there are the monks who see these ceremonies as of no value, and that doing the ceremonies for the people is almost a falsehood. To actually go out there and do those ceremonies that the people want done is not a good idea. That this is the example that I got from Bhikkhu Buddhadasa. So I was unskilled at chanting when I got to the United States and happened to have been basically uh, befriended by and uh, had a close relationship with, let us say, uh, the U.S. world champion of chanting, <laughs> Mahasamsak, <laughs> who, who was trained by the world champion in 1954, who did the, uh, uh, who actually memorized the entire Tripitaka and recited it at the World Conference. There was two of them. One was a Thai and one was a Burmese. And the one who was Thai was Maha Sumzak's teacher. And so he was really into the chanting. So um, the, the upshot of that is that I wound up writing a book on chanting just as, um, let us say, a, a learning exercise because of my appreciation for Maha Sumzak and the skills that he had at chanting. So naturally, any ceremony within 100 miles, they want him to be the, the head dude. 
but I've seen some others really good chanters uh, in the U.S. anyway. But in that regard, he is doing a noble thing for himself while he is doing what other monks would consider an ignoble thing. So one could say uh, for that college professor that we talked about, or maybe even the preacher in the pulpit, how close to the line can he go? How close to the line can he go in planting seeds without losing his job or losing any respect or all of that? Because the point is, is that in Buddhism, that uh, that the monks are expected to become noble. Within Christianity, it's a heresy to become noble because mm. their storyline is more important than the moral to the story. And an example of that is the story of Adam and Eve, where the Christians are much more interested in talking snakes. The girl did it first. What is an apple? And uh, who is a God that throws people out of a paradise because they eat apples? Okay, so this is the storyline that everybody's into. And they miss the real moral of the story, which is the eating of the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil destroys our paradise. What do I mean by eating of the fruit? means that we have to put up with the results of our judgmental mind. And here we are in paradise judging it. And we're finding something wrong with it. And because, because we want to make it better. When in fact it's already okay. There's nothing to do here. Except enjoy the fact that we're already alive. So right there in that. Uh, the first chapter of Genesis. That's all the Bible really needs. Is the story of Adam and Eve. If we would all follow the moral of the story of Adam and Eve. Our society would be fit. But no, we've made Adam and Eve a magical creature. The first man. Where was he? You know, and all of that and try to literalize the story rather than getting the point of the story. <laughs> it's funny as we did the same thing with God, too. With what? With God. God, yes, right. We just <laughs> like Adam, we preach. put pants on God, gave him a beard and a trident, and gave him a great big throne to sit on. Not recognizing that we're in the wrong religion. Because <laughs> I just described Zeus. <laughs> I know, I was like, what? <laughs> so, okay, so a couple of questions here. One is, I would say the monk that does the Shakti pot is behaving nobly uh, because he's behaving in the spirit of friendship, right? Precisely. Helping the, the Laotians and That's the Vietnamese. That's Mahasamsak. Right. Mahasamsak did, and I went with him, and I did more Shakti pot with, with Mahasamsak for the Cambodian community than I ever got around with uh, uh, Muktananda back in the 70s. <laughs> that he did it occasionally, but Mahasamsak was in great demand. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure, and he's helping all these people, and occasionally one or two might be more interested in the noble, right? You know, and it kind of reminds me of how... It was almost as if the young men in the Sangha, it was my job. 
And when I say in the Sangha, I really mean the layman. I remember specifically making a very, very close connection with a young man. Uh, and others would say, well, why didn't Mahasamsak do that? And not recognizing that, no, that was actually my role to play. And I took it on. But mm. the point that I'm making is, is that at the point in time when a young man of age of 20 is saying goodbye to his uh, dad or grandfather, and he's the one that has chosen to push the button on the cremation machine to fire it up while the monks are chanting. And what the chant is, is... Um, uh, Never mind, we won't, we won't do a funeral chant right now. <laughs> <laughs> we'll just say that as that I'm doing the chanting and I'm holding this young man's hand and, and pointing out when is the right point in time to push the button and mm -hmm. being there very close and very tender with him at that point in time to where Maha Samsak is much more interested in doing the chanting correctly for the old people. Right. And so this was kind of a teamwork that, that I right. experienced at more than one occasion with him. But that was a real because that made a bond with that young man that popped him into the what now every week after that. Oh, wow. That's a great story. Mm -hmm. So so it seems to me that, you know, okay, so there's upaya, right? Skillful means. So another example of, of something related to the chanting might be this uh, this 300-foot-tall Buddha statue in India. They have this giant golden Buddha statue of India. And the arguments that the Buddhists make is not that the Buddha would want a gold statue of himself for his own glory, but that it helps bring people into the sangha when they see this statue. They get curious about it. You know, and so it seems to me there's this way in which the noble can actually work with the ordinary to bring more people in in very effective ways, like Samsak with the chanting and yourself with the the noble friendship. Uh-huh. So, well, by the way, what you're talking about is far more ubiquitous than those great big dudes. <laughs> and and by the way, the uh, the training uh, what where Mahasamsak learned to do the chanting was Wat Po in Bangkok, which is the training place, uh, is one of the major Wats on the um, old city, uh, the Lung Po. Let us say with an easy walking distance, five minutes or so, you have the Royal Palace, you have Wat Prakiao, you have Wat Mahatat, you've got uh, uh, Thomasite University and a great big field. And then right across from the field, you have all these big buildings which happen to be military <laughs> <laughs> with big, big guns in their front yard, old antiques. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, at Wat Po, there is the most giant of the reclining Buddhas. This one goes about mm. 80 feet. This one is the big dude on tap. <laughs> mm. <laughs> um, and it's much better taken care of now, so I hear, than it was uh, when I first saw it back in the um, early 80s. But meanwhile, those are very, very rare. 
By the hundreds of thousands, there's these little statues that are just all over the place. I've got a half a dozen around here someplace. Ah, my old favorite. (laughs) (laughs) The snake statue. Okay. And that, by the way, these are the seven factors of enlightenment. The Sambo Jhana is what the Buddha uses for protection. That's what this whole idea of the big snake, the snake is a Naga or um, something very powerful that he's sitting there being protected by and is considered a seven headed giant snake. But these are the seven factors of enlightenment. Now, the question is, why are all of these things around? The answer for me is because, well, it's (laughs) it's a teaching tool in this case, which is exactly what you were talking about, Robert. Teaching tool. Sure. But a lot of, unfortunately, not a lot of teaching is going on. And it's more for the entertainment or because it looks cool. There's a whole... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and yeah. so those would be the two ordinary uh the one is ordinary and the other one is noble one the ordinary is because it looks cool and the, the and the other one the noble is because it gives an opportunity to teach so okay so here's a question we have to so, be sneaky about it we don't proselyze we don't go grab people <laughs> off the street and bring them in and give them a meal and give them a sermon. We don't do it. That <laughs> yeah. We should go door to door. Hello. Like the Mormons. I, I'm the Jehovah's Witness for Buddha. So I'm the Buddha Witness. <laughs> <laughs> and you're going to go to hell if you don't read my book. <laughs> You're going to go to hell. In fact, you're already in hell. Bye. (laughs) Don't forget to breathe. (laughs) If you want out of hell, read. (laughs) (laughs) So. This is a way of looking at it is now we can say, can those preachers or can those generals, the general who wakes up to that war is not the way, and yet he's got a whole career in the military. Mm. What can he then do? What kind of job can he have in the military? Or is he going to leave the military? Because those are the two choices, is either find a way to help shape the military. In fact, there's a whole lot of people coming out of the woodwork nowadays saying, well, I stayed in the Trump administration because I knew it was a pile of crap, but I was there trying to save something. That if I had quit, then he would gotten even a worse dude that really actually still believed him. And that's that's the point. I would rather have preachers in the pulpits who know what they're preaching is the pile of crap (laughs) and stay there preaching anyway, rather than them uh, being wet behind the ears and don't have a clue that the pile of crap that they picked up is a pile of crap. They just don't know that. And so they, they are selling it 
um, uh, ignorantly. So why do you think that generals, you know, why do you think that generals in the military do become aware of the absurdity of war? How do you think that process happens? For many different ways, but it can, in fact, uh, the correct answer to that is by correct, direct seeing. And that can happen in many ways. Watching a tank get blown up right in front of you. You're a tank designer. You've designed this tank and you're, mm. you, you either see it directly or standing or watching a film or whatever and see the Ukrainians using this javelin or something like that. And my prized possession just blew up in my face. Right. Mm. That's one way. How mm. about having your your best buddy get his head blown off? Mm. But in fact, uh, there is a movie um, uh, this very famous uh, All Quiet on the Western Front. Mm -hmm. that's, that's about a guy who was in the war and basically he would rather draw birds in class and then he draws birds. And what happens is, is that there he is in the in the, the slime of the World War One uh, trenches and he's drawing a picture of a bird. And the bird moves, and he moves to see the bird and gets his brains blown out. He just oh. moved just enough, bam, oh. and he's dead, right? And that's the, basically the end of the movie. Sad mm. movies. There are too many sad movies. We need, <laughs> 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 we need to be able to actually draw a bird in a trench. <laughs> so um, the, the, the point is that Things can happen like that, that you can have your friend's face blown out. You can have half your body blown off. Some people uh, survive uh, physical injuries, but they torment themselves for the rest of their lives. And a few of them wake up. Mm. Mm. Yeah, I've noticed that like some people who are like um, put in a position where most of their body has become disabled or like most of their senses are blinded that they're less they're like almost forced like they're either could wake up or just uh perpetually be in like intense misery mm -hmm. so like so like i feel like people who are in like um extreme cases of um debilitation uh it kind of forces them in a way to the Dhamma or in a way to um, the, the liberation or like uh, the freedom from mm -hmm. the, the bodily circumstances. Mm -hmm. Often though, uh, if it's done in an ordinary way, rather than through a real awakening, because people can actually wake up uh, even to the point of seeing their own greed. But oftentimes with rehabilitation methods, when they're so interested in getting him walking again, that mm. they're not interested in uh, helping him figure out that it was his greed that got his legs blown off. Mm. <laughs> okay, so that that that's the various ways that we can wake up. And it's actually easiest to do when we've got someone to stand there and point at what we're doing and laugh so that we have to, to to begin to look at what's going on that in fact if we're curious and playful 
then it's easier to see it. But if we don't want to see it, if we don't like it, then it's hard to look at. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> but if we're really curious and, and interested and joyful and playful, some, in fact, uh, it was the other Robert who just put something on um, our, our, our Skype group about, it was an, a, an image that says that it takes a repetition of 400 times to do something over and over again to build a new synapse. Mm. But they also found out that if it's done in play, then it only takes about 20 repetitions to build mm. a synapse. Okay. Mm -hmm. If that's true, then imagine a daddy trying to teach his five or six year old how to catch, how to play catch. If the daddy throws the ball gently at the child so that the child can catch it, he can he can begin to develop that skill within 20 times. But if the dad's throwing the ball too hard for the little kid to be able to catch it, mm -hmm. he is going to take 400 times or more. So that it has also that quality of the environment is because if the dad is playing with the child, then the child will learn quickly. And if the dad is rough on the child or angry at the child, the child will learn very slowly. Little kids get very afraid. And when they're afraid, they're only interested in what can I do right now to stay alive? And so little kids who are being fussed at, they don't ever listen. They don't hear anything that they're ever told when you're fussing at them. And so that's the reason why it's so slow. It takes 400 times to do it over and over again when uh, your heart's not in it. But when your heart's in it, it, that's almost like the extra juice that it takes. That's the aliveness to become back alive. And when we're alive, we can get things done much easier. Yes, Robert. So, so let's say you... Um you have a behavior that's unwholesome, right? Or a, a way of thinking that's unwholesome, right? And you keep waking up after you make this unwholesome mistake again and again and again. Each time you wake up and say, oh, I shouldn't have thought that way or said that way or said no, something that way. No, uh, that's, that's just wallowing in your own misery. That's just another pity party. <laughs> ah, okay. <laughs> that's using a rule, applying it as a rod, and then whacking yourself for no reason <laughs> at all. Hey, don't you think it's useful to reflect, though? Like maybe you made a mistake. Yes, and, let's And then you're like, okay, next correctly. time. No, you okay. did not make a mistake. You reflect upon that behavior in the sense of, oh, that is not me. That's not who I am. I've got higher, whoever I am has got better standards than that. <laughs> whoever that is, he's gone. That's not who I am. <laughs> okay. Forget about uh, the past, okay? <laughs> Yeah, that, that actually helps a lot. Yeah, thanks. It Just, does. It really does. In fact, yeah. that's the way of forgiving ourselves is with the uh, kind of honor code of, hey, I see that that behavior was really, really stupid. I didn't see it then, but I'm not the same person as I was then. Mm, I can see right. how stupid that is now. And so I forgive myself for being stupid, not for what I did. Mm -hmm. Right. Okay, and so now that I, uh, but I've learned, now I know better. 
Now right. I don't do that anymore because I see how harmful it is. And so I take great joy and hmm, I'm better than that. <laughs> so so what do you think of that? I don't do that stuff anymore. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Changed, so, man. So so what do you think of that? Like like a lot of people get this way with procrastination, right? We'll say they know they're supposed to do something or they feel that they're supposed to do something. They spend like an hour playing a video game. It was a world class. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Crash tonight. (laughs) (laughs) Anything that can be put off. Is worth putting off. (laughs) (laughs) Say that twice. Your job is to find out why, when you don't put up stuff, when you can't put stuff off, why is it so damned important? It's in our society that procrastination is bad because if you procrastinate, I suffer. You go do what I told you to do. You go cut the yard. You're lazy. I mean, this is the kind of stuff that I heard from my dad. Unfortunately, the 15-year-old that's being yelled at for not cutting the grass is not the wise old man who knows how to answer him now. Hey, you want the grass cut? (laughs) I wonder who you can get to cut it. (laughs) I don't particularly want the grass cut. I like grass that grows, thank you very much. I like the fact that it's alive. I'm not trying to kill it off. (laughs) Whack it off. You go cut the grass if that's what you want. (laughs) (laughs) So much for procrastination, huh? (laughs) Yes, so monks are world-class procrastinators. We've all learned how to do that from the Buddha. You You know how we learn it? Because we learn to not give a flying rip about it. <laughs> it's not important anymore. And the way that we approach that is number one, we hate things. Number two, we get a big kick out of it and see how silly it is. And number three, we just kind of ignore it altogether. <laughs> <laughs> And the grass goes by itself, Daddy. <laughs> so the education is built on do this, otherwise I suffer. Mm-hmm. Do your and that's what the, I hired you to do a job, didn't I? Right. Yeah. You don't do what you're told to do, you get fired. Hmm. Wow. And so you go around doing a whole bunch of stuff that you're because you're afraid that you're going to get fired. If you don't have a job, imagine how freeing that is. You don't. Robert, you don't have to get up and go anywhere in the morning. Isn't that marvelous? It's it's wonderful. (laughs) It is wonderful. (laughs) To not have to be obligated to go do something that somebody else wants you to do. That we can just kind of do what we want to do instead, which is I love not it. much. 
procrastinate all you like. Love it. <laughs> the earth, the environment will be much better off if you procrastinate digging for lithium. <laughs> and then when you have a job, you can make you can think wisely and choose wisely and say, oh, well, this is what I want to do because mm -hmm. I'm doing. This is what I'm choosing in my life right now. Mm hmm. So, OK, so my question, though, was. Let's say you keep making the same mistake again and again and again, and you reflect upon it as though, okay, you know, why do I keep making this mistake again and again and again? Do you think that reflecting upon it will eventually help you correct the mistake, or do you think it's just like a habitual cycle? You know, how do you how do you correct? You're still always living in the past. Right. The way to do it is to catch yourself doing it right now. And say, aha, I caught you. Mm. Aha, I see that stuff. <laughs> mm -hmm. Like I was right then when I even brought it up. Mm -hmm. yeah. Exactly. Mm. Good job, man. That was good. When we bring it up, that's the time. Yeah. Not, not after it's happened and then we reflect upon it. We've already done all the reflection <laughs> that we need to do. We've already determined that that's not a good idea. So let's wake up now to when we're doing it in this present moment. And put mm -hmm. a stop to it. Right. Which is another way of freeing yourself from guilt, you know, or burden. Mm -hmm. The Buddha talks about that. He uses the word or the Pali word is whatever it is, is translated into the word remorse, but it's the same thing. Guilt and remorse are basically the same ball of wax. Okay. Might have some slight translation differences in some dictionary someplace but basically if we regret if we remorse over something that's happened in the past then um in the future we could reflect if i do that then later in the future i will regret it again that in fact, while we're doing it, if we see we're doing it, we're regretting right now. And so that's the way that the Buddha then says it is, is that if we refrain from the bad behavior that we're about to do, then we can be free from the twins, the regret from doing it while we're doing it and the regret for having remembered doing it later. So we're free from two kinds of, of regret or guilt because we caught ourselves just as we were pushing the button. That mm -hmm. nuclear button, you know, to blow up our world. <laughs> or to play yes. Yeah, so this is related to another thing. So one thing I've noticed, you know, like in relationships, is you kind of accumulate scorecards, or, or people tend to do this, you know, in a relationship. So, you know, if you get- Ammunition, gets, don't call it a scorecard. Those things are actually darts and daggers. Yeah. <laughs> That's uh, ammunition you're talking about here. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, totally. I mean, it's like, okay, I remember this one time you did this, you did it three other times, or, you know, or she says you did this thing four times, but if you do it the first time, it's no problem at all. But once it, starts to accumulate the ammo piles up you know so i'm curious to hear your thoughts on this whole scorecard concept and why it happens and how to you know i i know how to prevent yes. it you just don't worry be happy that's the answer to everything but i'd love to hear more detail well, well 
you, you know, oh, right. The, I'll give you the mafia version of that then. Yeah. Or forget about it. Forget about it. Yeah, forget those scorecards. Yeah, you, you, those scorecards. Throw them out before you hurt yourself with them. <laughs> <laughs> Throw them out before you hurt a friend. Right. Forget about it. Let see each that moment I, be new. See that every mm. time how to write something down on the scorecard, you're unknowingly about to give yourself a paper cut. Right. Mm-hmm. So, but what if you notice like a repeated bad behavior, you know, like I think that's why people keep the scorecards is they're afraid that if someone continues to tick off a particular habit or behavior on the scorecard, then they're I know. bad. I can that's see why that. People keep them. You're, yeah. I can see that habit you're in. You're in the habit of ticking that. That's a bad behavior I see there. That's a right. bad behavior I see there. That's your habit. I see what you did there. Okay. Why don't instead of seeing what she did again, see that you're checking the box again. Mm. You're <laughs> keeping score again. <laughs> <laughs> you're the one who is calling her behavior bad again. You're the one mm. who is in a state of not liking again. Sure. Instead of saying, I see that behavior in her. <laughs> oh, I see that again. <laughs> I see that one. You don't take that position. You don't play that card right then. You save it for later, hoping to get a hand or something. <laughs> <laughs> Some end game or whatever. I would recommend that if you got a card, play it right then. Joyfully so. <laughs> tease her that way you only have to tease her 20 times mm -hmm. if you play the cards you're going to have to play that card 400 times so you're going to have to collect a whole lot of stuff on her <laughs> <laughs> you saw that little poem didn't you the little uh, article on the uh, group here I did yes the yes, 400 uh, uh-huh. Yeah. Okay. So tease her 20 times rather than yell at her 400 times. Mm. <laughs> and by the way, the yelling at her doesn't help at all. You're just yelling at yourself anyway because you don't dare open your mouth. That woman will slap you. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'd, I'd get slapped. <laughs> <laughs> You're just keeping score hoping someday my hand will come. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So look at the attitude that you have moment by moment in this present moment, how you react to other people, because you've got a choice about it. You could either choose to do it the way that you have been doing it, keeping score. I mean, how long have you been keeping score, Robert? <laughs> sometimes I do, sometimes I don't. Uh huh. Okay. You know, but it's been going on for a long time. But sometimes, yeah. how about with daddy? <laughs> long time, you know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but I stopped doing that, you know. Which. Uh, well, you can stop again. Right. 
Congratulations. If you can stop one time, you can stop again. All you have to do is remember to stop in this moment right now. When stopping you right are now. Tra- <laughs> right. When you're creating that card, recognize right. that, that this is an opportunity to play right now. Right. Now, she will not react to your happy teasing the same every time, but it really is our best artillery. I mean, it really does soften <laughs> things up. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, I've gotten some pretty bad reactions to that, actually, but <laughs> so, so I've been choosing silence. Well, that's the, the, reason, the reason why she will give you a bad reaction to your teasing is because she knows that that incoming will hit home. <laughs> <laughs> Right. I mean, what I've found is you do silence and then later you can do the teasing once things are have cooled. Okay. Okay. Yeah. All right. So watch that cooling time. Watch the cooling process. Mm-hmm. Because if, if you're, um, let us say, um, skilled and watchful, you'll find it maybe the timing is shorter than you had originally thought that she may, in fact, if it takes her 10 minutes, maybe next time it's going to, going to take her nine. And maybe after that, only six. Right. Depends upon your silent time. Is that a joyful silent time or is it a sullen silent time? Uh, it's a mix. Uh-huh. Do you take her shoes off and give her a foot rub during that silent time? No. Okay. Well, those are nice. Just let it. You. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's a nice idea. <laughs> yeah, so she's going to get upset. So what? She's an ordinary human and she hasn't bought into the Dhamma yet. But they can still learn. They learn from nobles. We all learn. Why don't we uh, learn from nobles? Which means that why then don't we act nobly? Even when other people are around who are not acting nobly, if we start acting like they do, then we're not an example for anything other than being a dumbass that's just following along, going along to get along to join that (laughs) argument and yell back at somebody just because they're yelling at you. No, it's better to be really chill and cool and, and easygoing and happy. That invites them. I think is what's really going on is she says, and you say, wait a minute, but that's too late already. (laughs) (laughs) When she goes, you have to go. (laughs) Never mind. mind. Start again. (laughs) Right. Yeah. Can't open your mouth. That's the area that you need to look at is for, for your anger. When you're checking that box, when you're collecting that card, you got to remember to keep your mouth shut. Mm-hmm. Sure. So that's the best time to catch anger. The very, very best at time to catch anger is before it comes out, before you leak it out, before you shout it out. And then with a couple of deep breaths, you can smile. But if you yell in anger, now you got to go play that um, uh, routine we were talking about before. What is it? Remorse. Right. 
If you if you yell out then and you catch it as you're yelling out, you'll shut your mouth right then. But now you have to deal with the moment of remorse. <laughs> you should have shut your mouth before you opened it, <laughs> not after. <laughs> sure. But most arguments are because you won't shut your mouth until it's too right. late. And now she's all hot and bothered. Sure. So learning how to be quiet early. And if you're quiet early, then the smile that's so optional will be more effective. Right. That's the point is how quick can we catch this anger? Otherwise, you're fueling her fire. Once her fire is roaring hot, it's really hard to put it out. It's right. much easier to put out a campfire than it is to pull out a whole building fire or, in fact, an entire city block or maybe a city on fire. That's <laughs> hard to deal with. <laughs> yeah, sure. there you are, fanning the flames. <laughs> <laughs> so, yes, that and the, the reason in the very beginning of that is because of the ticking of the box that's bad i don't like her behavior mm. and because you don't like her behavior you exhibit exactly the same behavior for her that you don't like <laughs> she does it for you mm. so what are your thoughts on say like healthy communication right like uh let's say there's something that you know, you don't like about the other person. Like one thing I've found is if you bring it up at a really good time where everything's going really great, you can have a really nice conversation about it. Like that's mm -hmm. what I've found. Um, so like I could say to my girlfriend, you know, like, hey, remember this? Uh, or, or I could say, remember this one thing you said, like that hurt my feelings. But if I say it when things are don't really great, that. we don't have ever, like a really don't great- Don't ever tell her that she hurt your feelings. There's no reason <laughs> to do that. She can't hurt your feelings. You're lying to her when you say that. <laughs> she can't hurt your feelings. Your feelings are too precious for you to let her do it. You do it yourself. Mm. You're the one who hurts your own feelings. She can't hurt your feelings. Mm. So Own, um, owning that is tough. Because mm. then that means we got to keep our mouth shut when we want to go tell somebody how they bad they hurt us. Mm. And not only that, but we don't make good friends with people when we tell them how bad they hurt us. But Sometimes that can be very, you. yeah. Hmm? Well, no, you're wanting her to change where in fact the point is, is that you're the one that hurt yourself. Start looking at that so that it doesn't matter what she does. You're not hurting because you're not stabbing yourself with her daggers. Right. And not only that, but when you remember it, you're just stabbing her with an old dagger. And here you <laughs> go around remembering what she did yesterday, three or four things she did. That's three or four daggers you're stabbing yourself with again. And who's making who feel bad? Mm -hmm. Myself. Mm -hmm. So that's the way of understanding is, is that she, it's not her fault. 
Everything that I don't like is my own fault. I just don't know how to like things very well sometimes. And when you like what she does and tease her about what she's doing, she'll like that. But if you are angry at her and then tease her, of course it's going to piss her off. You pissed me off too. <laughs> <laughs> I thought you don't get pissed off. Ah, ah, you got me. <laughs> 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 oh, I could say it, but I would choose not to. <laughs> yeah, very good. Good catch, sir. <laughs> Excellent. Okay, so that's the point. It's not her fault. Stop keeping score on her because it's your scorekeeping that is causing your problem. Going back to right. the mafia answer, forget about it. Right. Go give her a foot rub instead. And work your way up from there. <laughs> <laughs> oh, boy. Well, that's super helpful. Thank you for all that. Okay. Well, um, where where do we go from here then? Um, I was I was thinking about. I had a question that popped up um, in my mind about um, the historical Buddha, and I was just pondering. Um, throughout history, there must have been a countless number of like enlightened masters and um, different like rishis and Buddhas. I was wondering uh, if you could say what the most, why the Buddha was such a revolutionary, like on the on the human uh, on the human consciousness and the human. He, he was like a he was like a spiritual revolutionary that like changed the entire entire civilizations and then even to this day like what 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 set how come the buddha was so um remarkable in that way that where we're still talking about the buddha <laughs> today okay i understand the question and the answer is is that what we find today is a series of events a whole parade of things that has happened that it would have been quite possible that everything that happened during his lifetime happened exactly but then after he died maybe a soap would have gotten killed in battle before he woke up and then there would have never been any um uh royal patronage which both made buddhism big and also introduced some dunk in it i hear somebody's microphone very noisy i don't know 
Okay, thank you. That was good. <laughs> so let's look at Christianity for a moment, because Christians will also say that Jesus was very special, but he was special because uh, of his daddy. But that was the only specialness that uh, uh, Jesus had. To where there was a lot more going on with that. There was the circumstances of a war that was brewing between the Romans and the um, uh, modern or the, the ancient inhabitants of the modern day Palestine and uh, Israel and that kind of thing. So it was a milieu, but he was poor. He was um, uh, kind of illiterate. He didn't know Jerusalem at all. But what he did have was things that happened after his death. Number one, we have Paul. We have a, a unification. We have wars where Jews went all over the place, as well as Paul and whatnot. And so Christianity somehow in uh, kind of a primitive form did make it to um, uh, Rome just in time for a fire. And so they were easy to blame for the fire. Right? 66 BC. And so the Christians were blamed for the fire. Later, that didn't kill out Christianity. They were just a bunch of them were fed to the lions, giving a lot of them the idea that they can be fed to the lions too, and that makes them a lion. And so they survived up until the time of Constantine. Then Constantine came over and made it into a state religion. Okay, Alex, see you later. Take care, uh, Alex. Happy Friday. Okay, so that means then that Christianity was a series of events and that other things could have happened whereby we would have a modern day Mithraeus religion rather than Christianity. Because at the time of Constantine, he chose Christianity over Mithraism, even though most of the military was already Mithras. That's why Christianity's modern day version is so close to Mithraeus, including December the 25th and all kinds of, you know, like 12 disciples raising from the dead and a dozen other things that has been tagged on to Christianity that was actually borrowed at the time when it became a state religion. So back to Buddhism now. What we can then say is, is that maybe it wasn't Buddha so important himself. He was just an example that what really was is that there had been Buddhas before and there have been Buddhas after, but they didn't know how to convey what they had figured out. A modern example of that is Eckhart Tolle, who was so miserable that he just kind of sat down on the park bench for two years in London. But he doesn't know how to teach when people ask him what to do and how to teach. You know what he does? He reads Buddhism books to figure out what it was that happened to him. And the same thing is true with Ram Dass, that that's what the Buddha actually had was he had a way of formulating it to make it clear and easy to understand. Yes, Robert, your hand is waving. 
Yeah, so um, what do you think happened to Eckhart Tolle? Why do you think this thing happened to him? You know, he's just sitting on a bench and then he uh, became enlightened. You know, like, how would you describe this? Uh, like, what, why did this happen to him? What happened? I would much rather look at not how what happened to him on the park bench. I'm much more interested in how he became famous. <laughs> Does anybody know book. how to become famous? <laughs> he wrote that book. Um, he wrote the book, The Power of Now. And uh, oh. it, was a, it was a very, um, very simple... It, I, I wouldn't say that reading it um, can teach you the Dhamma, but like it's kind of like a, it's like I would put it in the category of like a self-help book that mm-hmm. like um, it just went viral. So like every now and then someone will come out with like the power of now essentially is just a book about uh, being in the present moment, right? But um, it's like the way it was written is so like, digestible for the lay person or the no- normal person whereas like i feel like uh some some of the teachings of the dhamma is like they need their context and like each person is different and like 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 how you said like the buddha or no like how the buddha had a different practice and he he knew how to respond to like each student differently i feel like uh the same way the same way like a pop pop music is kind of really bad but it's just it's just like um, vanilla enough to be popular among the most people. Mm-hmm. So I I think that's the same way with these guys like Eckhart Tolle. Not to say like Eckhart Tolle isn't enlightened, but like his his work is just it's like the pop music of spirituality. So it goes viral. <laughs> okay, that's my opinion. But one of the qualities of it going viral is that it's got value, and that's what we're looking at here is the fact that what he has done has value to it. Uh, And that what we can say about Buddhist uh, teaching is that it has been, it has been beat on, it's been buried in the mud, it has been slapped around, it's been pulled like taffy, it has just been manipulated and burned at the stake and killed off and uprooted. I'm thinking about the Bodhi tree now, (laughs) up everything. And yet it has survived. That's remarkable all by itself. That the teaching of the Buddha has remained intact. But it came, uh, let us say, in, in that tattered state and that what we need to do is to sort of clean it up and get the junk yeah, off of it. I think that's another of the of the uh, differences and the reasons because Eckhart Tolle was um, not coming from a cultural like Buddhism is mixed in like to the Western person like Buddhism is like synonymous with like the religion and like the culture of Buddhism rather than the teachings of the Buddha. Like before, before I actually learned any like real Dhamma, I would think of Buddhism and I would just think of like Chinese people. Mm-hmm. So there, there's like. You would uh, think of Chinese culture. Yeah, I would think of Chinese culture. Um, okay. 
or yes. other people would think of Thai culture and other people would think of Tibetan culture and other people would think of of uh, Japanese culture and other people would think about, uh, if they know anything about it, Cambodian culture and et cetera like that. But here's the thing, that those are the cultural aspects of it and Western Buddhism now has the disadvantage of not having to take Buddhism, the real teaching of the Buddha, out of just one culture. They've got to siphon through five or six or eight cultures. Mm. Okay, but there is an advantage if we know what to do, and that advantage comes a bit mathematical. It's like the same thing as the associative law of multiplication. The associative law of multiplication states that A times B plus A times C is equal to A times B plus C. Right? You can extract the A out, leaving B and C separate. But we are given Chinese Buddhism in the sense of AB. And then in, in Tibet, we're giving uh, Tibetan Buddhism which is an A-T. And then we go to Thailand and we'll get an A-S, right? And we go to Sri Lanka and we get an A-L. What's really going on is the L is for Sri Lanka, but the A is the real teaching of the Buddha. And we can actually extract the real teachings of the Buddha from all of these other religions, very much like, um, uh, uh, do you know what shish kebab is? Yeah. It's pieces of meat and other things, maybe a tomato or an onion, or maybe a piece of, no, not cheese, but whatever, on a stick, right? <clears throat> I, I made a shish kebab yesterday. All right, so what we're actually in looking at is, is that we're going to pull that stick out of the shish kebab and the stick is the teaching of the Buddha, and all of that kebab is a bunch of Thai and Singapore and uh, I, I think it's hilarious. It was like the first time making shish kebab in my life. I made it yesterday, <laughs> and then you bring up shish kebab in the Dhamma talk the next day. That's so funny. But anyway. <laughs> yes, 28 years, no shish kebab. Serendipity. Yeah, <laughs> that's a Damarado's magical powers that like he doesn't want to tell you about. Yeah, <laughs> he has the, he has the it, Oh, it really happens often. I'm talking <laughs> about a particular song, and the woman is sitting right here on my turntable. That song we played just last night, and here we are. The other one would be uh, talking about uh, washing each dish one at a time, and the guy admits, "I'm a professional dishwasher. Why do you talk about <laughs> washing dishes?" <laughs> I don't know how that stuff happens, but wow, does it happen a lot when you're watching. You know, I, I always take it whenever that happens, my wholesome thought about it is it's a sign that things are going in the right direction. But that's right. that's how I interpret that. Okay, things are going in the right direction. That's what that means. Mm -hmm. I don't know if it's true or not, but that's my interpretation. You know? <laughs> well, it's just the, that the human mind is working because that's what it does best is make connections. And here you are making connections with shish kebab. Right. <laughs> so 
Um, why don't we finish up, guys? This has been a really great talk, though we've gotten nothing in particular done. I think that it's, it's always good to talk about the Dhamma this way in just applicational ways rather than always talking about Four Noble Truths, Eightfold Noble Path, Anapanasati, Satipatthana, but rather talking about how to apply it. We were procrastinating right. about the other stuff. Procrastination, <laughs> right. Don't procrastinate about procrastination. Just stop doing it all together. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> all right, guys. Nice okay, guys. This has been you. great. All right. <laughs> yeah, it's been great. Oh, Don Murado. I'd yes. like to call you up in a little bit and do Suda number two. Um. Okay, later. Later. Okay, cool. Okay. All right. Call you later. Good night. Take care. And good day to you. Tomorrow. See you guys. Okay. <laughs> See you. Cheers. Bye-bye.